Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mom listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. And I'm Vivian Kelly. And joining us to break down the week in media and marketing is our senior media reporter, Hannah Blackiston. Hello. And later on, we'll be talking to Lad Bible's managing director, Joe Summers, about Lad Bible's expansion into the Australian market. Now that we're here in Australia, that's the focus. We really want to produce content for Australians in their language, which is why the team that we've got in place here are mostly Australians. Surviving the Facebook algorithm carnage. I'd probably say we're publishers, maybe saw a dip is where they didn't tailor the content for social and the content that lad bible's audience actually wants we asked their audience through a survey on social we asked them what topics do you want to hear about you know what would you love to hear from us and how but first the week's topics do recruiters in adland have a woman problem why aren't australia's broadcasters working together on video your money closes its website and shaking up the clemenger group structure so this week, former News Corps Head of Digital Strategy and Innovation, Alice Almeida, wrote a piece for us, lamenting how difficult it is for women to return to Adland after having a baby. Now, she wasn't just talking in hypothetical terms. Uh, Alice has been attempting to return to work, and uh, recruiters have been offering her the slightly insulting idea of entry-level data positions for $90,000 a year less than her previous News Corps salary. Um, so Viv, you you worked with Alice on the process of us publishing this piece. How did it come about? Well, Alice actually posted the anecdote to LinkedIn, breaking down her experience prior to having a baby and then breaking down her experience with recruiters and the sorts of language and packages that they were offering her as she attempted to return to work. I got in touch with Alice on LinkedIn because I could just tell that this was a story that was really going to resonate with a lot of people, but also cause debate about what we should expect from women when they're returning to work and what women should expect from their workplaces when they're returning. It was difficult. Alice obviously had to think about it because putting your name to something like this can be a bit of a risk. You're always going to have people wanting to tear you down or, you know, make you think about how you've contributed to the problem and how it's not Adlan's problem, it's your problem, there's something wrong with you. And also we've been criticised before for running anonymous pieces. Sometimes people think those pieces are invented. Indeed, I think one commenter accused you of writing a fake pregnancy piece for us a number of weeks ago. So I really wanted to have Alice's name to this to show what a real story it was. Well, this is the frustrating thing, isn't it? it, it you, you just wonder whether people are so sort of in a bubble in terms of the issues and challenges that Adlan faces, they think we need to make up these stories when they're they're just all around. Yeah, I mean, there would be simply no need for you, Tim, to sit at your computer and pretend you're a jaded pregnant woman who's been treated badly because there are plenty of jaded pregnant women who've been treated badly. You don't need to pretend to be one. But... In this case, I didn't want it to be anonymous because I think it sort of helped to shut down anyone saying this is invented, this isn't real, this is Mumbrella just doing something for clicks. This was Mumbrella doing something because Alice is incredibly experienced, incredibly well-respected, and she's still struggling. But, of course, it was a huge risk for her to put her name to it and invite people to read her very personal story, which included IVF and leaving her job at News Corp and to invite them to comment on it as mm. well. So I'm very, very pleased that she did it, but I really do also respect her for, for taking that risk and, and telling her story. Now to, I, I suppose, put, put some of the argument put by one or two commenters and perhaps more aggressively so on the Daily Mail website once the mail ripped off the story. Um, the argument that, hey, we're in a capitalist society, you know, the price we're offered or the price we accept reflects our value in the market we all signed up to be in a capitalist society what 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 would we think about that did we sign up i don't remember signing up i feel like i was just born here uh you're you're, you're free to reject <laughs> working <laughs> yeah. within a capitalist society i suppose but yeah. uh, <laughs> i'm I, not quite sure how it would work out i don't know how many other viable options there are there are for me but look that's just such a basic argument that is often applied 
to real estate in that, you know, if a property can't sell, people say, well, look, there's always a buyer. You've just set the price wrongly. You know, it's not that no one wants your house. It's that your expectations are too high. I think applying that argument to human beings in an inherently unequal society just completely glosses over the issues and it's pretending that the capitalist system is perfect and it's pretending that our structures are equal and that there's no structural oppression or difficulties to overcome. So I don't think that's fair. I think sometimes you have to work harder to get equality. You can't just expect that it's going to be there. And if businesses were given the right to pay people just whatever they wanted and not take into account all of these other things, I think everybody's salary would be lower, not just Alice's. And the other question, which again was sort of discussed in the piece, was the role of recruiters in this, because some of the sort of, you know, more offensive offers in in terms of, you know, Alice's perceived value seemed to come from that direction or assumptions about, you know, her ability to travel or want to travel or otherwise. Um, is it simply that recruiters are willing to kind of say that's be, be, be the in-between person and say that awkward thing on behalf of the employer, or do we think they're part of the problem? Well, that's an interesting discussion because Alice's experiences thus far have been with recruiters in terms of the terrible salaries she was offered and the woeful excuses she was given for the step down she was being expected to take. So some commenters were saying this isn't reflective of Adlan's attitude to women, this isn't reflective of Adlan's employment practices, it's reflective of of out-of-touch and inept recruiters. So that's definitely a problem. You've got recruiters just spamming people with the wrong jobs with inappropriate packages and, and saying really indelicate things. But that is an interesting theory that perhaps they are more empowered to say things that organizations can then distance themselves from and say well all that wasn't us but it might be a quite convenient way for them to sneak things out like oh this is going to involve travel it's going to involve being away from your baby then if you know anything hit the fan they could say oh no we we didn't mean that it was just the inept underqualified recruiter a recruiter's not surely empowered by the industry that they are hiring into. So that recruiter or the recruiters who have approached her aren't going to be recruiters who are working across a variety of industries. They're going to be recruiters who are working specifically to Adland. And therefore, they're obviously feeling like they're allowed to go to somebody and pitch really low jobs, low ball offers, come in saying, well, the, you know, there's going to be a lot of travel and whatever. And they're also then going back to the companies they're recruiting for and saying, okay, well, here's what she said in respect to this. If that company was to turn around and say, that's completely inappropriate, you shouldn't have offered that, you shouldn't have said, you know, there's travel, you're going to be away from your baby, recruiters would stop asking those questions. So I would say to blame the recruiters entirely is kind of ignoring the relationship they have with the companies that they're recruiting for. Yeah, look, I suppose there is the argument there there may be good recruiters out there. And I, I think particularly at the top end of the market, I, I can think of at least one or two who, you know, I, I, I think are a lot more credible. Um, I think my favourite comment from our comment thread was, was, was this. They talked about talking to a colleague about uh, are there good recruiters? And our commenters' uh, comment on the thread was, there are literally none. They don't know what you want, where you've come from, or what's best for you. They pretend to understand the industry, but they are merely intruders on the fringe. I like that phrase, intruders on the fringe. Might use that for the subject line in best of the week on Saturday. (laughs) They have monthly targets just like you, and you are their product. Approach companies you want to work for directly, find the most appropriate contact on LinkedIn, and start a dialogue via email, LinkedIn messaging, which I suppose that's one of the things for recruiters, isn't it? It's a dying industry. LinkedIn will kill them. Yeah, another commenter mentioned that they sort of find the ads from recruiters or see what the recruiters are seeking and then use that language or those words to find the original job ad or to work out what company it is or to circumvent the recruiter. So that is possible. It obviously takes a lot more effort. But then as well, I think you can be in a bit of a stronger bargaining position as well for more money because you have to remember that if a recruiter sources you, they then get an ongoing payment from the company as well. So if you can get around them, you're then saving the company the money of paying out the recruiter and you're also not having to deal with nonsense such as this. Next, can Australia's free-to-air networks ever compete with the mighty monster that is Netflix? 
So Umbrella carried an interesting piece this week from PWC's Ben Shepherd, who put forward the argument that while 7, 9, 10 and SBS may all have made impressive progress in their broadcast video on-demand or BVOD services, as we call it, online catch-up viewing uh, with ads, um, they'll never truly be able to compete with the might of Netflix. And Ben's argument was that the only viable option for the free-to-air players is to have one BVOD platform. So no more 7 Plus, 9 Now and 10 Play, all standing in their own separate little uh, uh, silos. Um, That will be the only way to take on the international giants. Um, Hannah, I might come to you first. A credible idea, do you think? Um, I'm not sure if it's a credible idea. I think, um, to me, it does seem unlikely. I also think, um, well, tell you what, let's address that point. Why, why do we think it's unlikely? I just don't know that I see the benefit in it, to be honest with you, because mainly because I don't think it's as big a problem as Ben seems to suggest it is. I don't think consumers are bothered by having to go to different platforms and therefore I don't think that by joining together they would actually other than joining the viewers you know maybe you've only you only watch nine or you only watch seven and then maybe if you put them together on one platform you've got both those viewers but I think if the argument is if there was one platform everybody would sign up to it I'm not sure that that argument plays what about that sort of stumble on thing you know the fact that Netflix knows us well and suggests what we might want to watch next yeah. obviously you know one you know one offer you know you'll you'll watch uh, you'll watch Love Island and then automatically be fed you might like the bachelor in paradise imagine that all in one place it, it's to me it's just so ludicrous just thinking of how um they don't get along with each other. Um, but you're right. I didn't actually think of that angle and you are right. Then, you know, from that point oh, please onwards. Please don't agree with me. As as that. <laughs> well, yeah, that is kind of the beauty of Netflix, right? Is that you can turn it on and, you know, and never turn it off because it will just link you to stuff on and on and on. But I do, I just think the heritage between there being, you know, the three key brands, if you look at it that way, between seven, nine and ten, I think the chances of them agreeing to play ball together and all go in together, because um, are you not also then going to have the problem of you're not all bringing the same thing to the table? So how do you split it? Because if let's just look at, for example, nine married at first sight currently, well, just ended, but it's still being talked about. If nine's bringing married at first sight to a platform like that and therefore bringing millions of viewers to a platform like that and meanwhile the other networks are maybe not bringing millions of viewers are you not then going to have that argument that one of you is still inherently more powerful than the other ones viv do you think to to, to that point and to the previous point hannah was making about coming together look i suppose the networks they have come together to to fund think tv as the organization that speaks for it they they have worked together on free view which obviously isn't an all-platform offering the way that Ben's talking about, but at least exists as as one place if you go out in the unlikely event, you go out and buy a free view box in the <laughs> shop. Um, so they've, they've sort of staggered towards it slightly, yet at the same time, as as uh, as we know from the various kind of communications people for the various networks, they, they do struggle to... Um, communicate uh, in alignment when it comes to BVOD. Yeah, look, I think Think TV has done a fabulous job of presenting a united front for television and reminding marketers that television is a powerful marketing tool. I don't think they've fooled anyone that the TV networks are all friends and are all fine as much as they talk about how they need to come together and fight Facebook and fight Google and fight external threats. They do also still fight amongst themselves like children in the playground. So I think it would be incredibly optimistic to have them come together and it would create a whole host of new challenges. You know, Netflix isn't a conglomerate of lots of networks that came together. So the idea of having these various commercial forces coming together to take on a different commercial force. I just think it would be so, so hard and it wouldn't... They pulled it off in the US though. Who, that was how Hulu started. Yeah, but 
is Hulu, does anyone talk about that as a genuine competitor to Netflix though? Like, yeah, sure, it, it exists and it's a thing, but I don't think anybody's like at Netflix is shaking in their boots about about Hulu. And my favourite line from from this piece is Netflix is a verb, 7 plus is a noun. You know, Netflix is something that you do. What are you doing this weekend? Oh, Netflix. What did you do last night? Oh, I watched Netflix. You never, ever hear anyone say, oh, what did you do last night? Oh, I just chilled in front of 7 plus. That was just a window into the lifestyle of Vivian Kelly. <laughs> um, I think that's the problem here. I think people are thinking they can take on Netflix. And I don't think that's a possible option. If you look at the numbers, it's just not likely. Netflix is 30% of the streaming we do worldwide. I don't know that it needs to be a problem though. I think, um, you know, it's all well and good to stand there and say, well, we can tackle Netflix if we do this. But I think the way consumers look at streaming, they're not asking for one platform. They're not asking for one. I myself have about four platforms I use and I know plenty of other people who so do the same. Netflix, Stan. Stan. So will you be standing the hell out of your television <laughs> this weekend? <laughs> I mean, nobody says Stan no. and chill, do they? So it's still not a verb. They don't. And yet Stan, which... Stan was not mentioned in that piece um, and Stan is incredibly successful. Stan has got some really good content. People really like what Stan is bringing to the table. So and not, with Nine's interest in Stan, does that make it even less likely they're ever going to get on board with everybody else? Well, I suppose you could look at it two ways, couldn't you? Because on the one hand, once you know Nine bought Fairfax, they got 100% ownership back. Now, arguably, that might free up a slice to, to go back to a joint venture. But the question is, what what's Stan's biggest threat? Which feels to me it's going to be when those big players, like we know that Disney is launching, uh, Showtime are, are doing more via CBS and 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 um, all access. It feels like what Stan's problem down the track is going to be carrying on accessing international stuff. So if they free up a slice for anyone, surely it would be a, a Disney or a CBS rather than necessarily one of the local players. Although we have he heard the suggestion that News Corp might be around. We have heard that suggestion. Whether that suggestion was perhaps planted by Nine is a question. Um, but I think personally, if Stan are looking to maintain the trajectory they've currently got, they're going to be courting Disney. Because you're right, when Disney launches, especially with Disney's deal with Fox in the US, they've got access to a, ma a massive amount of content. Um, and if they can offer that to Stan, then that's great. I think on the other side of that as well, you have to think Apple TV Plus is coming soon. Um, they haven't announced what they're going to be able to do in Australia, but in the US, they're definitely looking like a bit of a threat. Um, so there are a lot of big players looking to come into this market. And I think you're right. I think if Stan wants to compete, they need that international connection. Well, next, News Corp and Nine close one of their publishing platforms. So uh, news out of News Corp. That's a lot of newses and nine this week that uh, the website for their joint venture TV channel, Your Money, is closing. Although it, Viv, although it wasn't that long ago, it feels like the whole idea of Your Money was conceived in a different age back before... Uh, uh, back before Nine was friends with Fairfax. Yes, this did all start before Nine Facts, or as I've heard uh, recently... Some of them internally are calling it fine. It's all fine at Fairfax and Nine. Uh, so the Your Money joint venture between News Corp and Nine was announced in June. Then on the 26th of July last year, Nine announced it was buying Fairfax, which was before the launch of Your Money, which was due for the 1st of October. So I actually recall in our special Nine Fairfax podcast, we talked about, well, what does this mean for Your Money? Surely the CEO of Nine, Hugh Marks, knew that both deals were in the offing at the time and thought that they could both work. And I think I speculated that Media companies these days are friends and enemies at the same time. They're sharing printing presses. They're joining up on data, but they're still fierce, fierce competitors. And actually our media reporter at the time, Zoe Samios, who herself is now at News Corp. AKA old Zoe. Yes. Also, she was the one that speculated uh, indeed that this Your Money joint venture could could come apart because she couldn't see how it could work with 
Fairfax, Nine and News Corp all competing and all being connected in now this way. Now you allude way. to the joint venture coming apart. Is there any suggestion? So the, I, I guess it's worth sort of spelling it. So the TV deal was Foxtel already had um, the, the sort of Sky News business channel, which effectively this was a rebranding. And then they then moved into the News Corp offices and called it Your Money, um, which also gave uh, access to the free-to-air secondary channel as well. So it got access to both um, uh, uh, satellite cable and also free-to-air as well. Is there any suggestion that that part of the deal could end? So you're right that it was a rebranding of Sky News Business, which goes to air on Foxtel, and Channel 9's uh, free-to-air shopping channel, Channel 95. Also channel 95? Also turned into... Good nerdy your, knowledge. <laughs> also, That's on my business card, good nerdy knowledge. Also turned into your money. So come on, how many other channels can you reel off that number there? Right? Uh, that was my only one, Tim. Don't, don't put me on the spot. I just know that this is Channel 95. Look, if you speak to people at Your Money who who still have their jobs and and people at Nine and, and News Corp, they would say that the TV venture is absolutely not in jeopardy. This is about a, a change in digital strategy. This is about a realignment of audiences. I struggle with that a little bit only because it's meant to be a 50-50 joint venture between Nine and News Corp and the digital platform and the digital play played a big part in that because... Did it, it though? Convince me of that because it feels to me like the broadcast deal was the big part of it. Well, I'm not pretending it was the bigger part of it. Obviously, the television stuff is bigger, but they invested a lot in building this platform and hiring a lot of journalists and really pushing that it was going to be this multi-platform play. As I also said in the Nine Fairfax special podcast last year, Nine is insistent that it is not just a television company. So they didn't just push the television element. They pushed the all-round focus, the videos, the website, the integration, you know, some of their digital journalists go on screen as experts. So to close that bit and to only direct the traffic that would have gone to yourmoney.com.au to News Corp doesn't feel like a very equal venture or a very equal decision because Nine also has finance websites and finance assets. There's Nine Finance. They also have lifestyle properties that could be getting that traffic, but it's only going to News Corp platforms now. Hannah, do you agree with your boss, Vivian? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Cards on the table. I did work at Sky News Business before it became your money. I left shortly before when we all knew it was coming but didn't know what it was. Um, And I would agree with Vivian in the sense that it was their hiring process that made the Your Money digital platform a thing. I think um, before that, what had been talked about in the office was very much the fact that we were going to be moving to free to air, which opened up a lot of sponsorship deals that weren't necessarily available on Fox. Um, And then suddenly when Your Money was announced, there was this vast raft of hiring um, some pretty good journalism talent for their digital platform. And to me, that was the bit that really confused me because Skybiz was going to air perfectly fine with the tiny team it had before that. Um, and yes, I think Peter Switzer, I don't know how he used to do it. He used to do it, what was it, at least an hour every night. I went on his show a couple of times and he'd literally sit in front of him and he'd have on one piece of A4, like maybe three lines in handwriting and that would be his entire script for the half hour interview um which would be incredibly erudite and well informed but he didn't survive the rebrand did he <laughs> no um <laughs> oh i don't I know how I've much i can some say sort of, <laughs> I feel I've, I've opened up some sort of can of worms which perhaps we should just 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 put the lid back yes. on and put some uh, put, put put some tupperware over it's the lucky top. we don't live stream so that people can't see the faces that are pulled during this podcast <laughs> yeah, let's just walk away from what i do or do know, don't know about skybiz <laughs> talent um yes but i think I Yeah, it was very much being run on a shoestring. There was a hilarious amount of time where we were actually filming out of a broom closet because we hadn't yet moved into the News Corp offices. I had to go through that. It was the strangest experience ever as a guest because you had to, (laughs) you sat along literally next to each other side by side facing the camera, but you, they didn't have... A two shot, as they call it in television, which meant that we weren't allowed to pretend we were, we had to pretend we weren't in the same room next to each other. We had to pretend we were 
crossing from different things so, so they, they would ask you a question you couldn't look at them you had to look at the camera and just act like you're in distant places it was very strange doing that it was very strange working there during that time uh, also, the other thing was it kind of i found myself thinking i came all the way to north ride to pretend <laughs> that i'm in the city yeah yeah i mean they could have set you up in the city though someone was having fun with you um yeah, but do you know what after doing it once i then started asking the question yeah, yeah i think yeah. a lot of people did um, um, which, yeah, then that was what was so confusing was that we were doing a very viable job up until that point, And then suddenly your money happened. A whole host of hired happened. A lot of money appeared to have happened. And now for this to very quickly and quietly be closed. And as Viv said, uh, the traffic to be redirected purely to News Corp. That's where the concerns lie for and me. And what do we know about um, job losses, if any? So... They have said, uh, as media companies always do in these situations, it's a small number. It's always a small number. They haven't given us the exact number, but I do know that a number of Your Money journalists are under the understanding that they will very soon be without jobs because they're not on-air talent. There isn't really anywhere else for them to go. Their job was to maintain and build a website of content that's not going to be there anymore that's going to be plugged by existing News Corp journalists. So, yes, I think the digital team will be no more. And unfortunately, I don't have a, a specific number, but it's, you know, one job loss is always one lo- job loss too many. Next, Chris Howitson's next big gig. So Clemenger Group announced a significant management restructure this week. Tim, You were sort of back on the news desk and across this one. It's a promotion for Chris Howitson, who was previously the head of CHE Proximity and now sort of seems to be overseeing Clemenger and everything. So what's happened here? Yeah, look, uh, so it's first probably worth making the point that this really is an internal move. Not So it won't change any of the outward-looking branding. So this Clemenger Agencies Group, which has been created, that's a sort of internal ti- sort of title, not something they'll be using with, with clients, for instance, or in the, in the wider thing. And, and I suppose one of the things that underlines that is that Chris continues to head up CHEP, C-H-E proximity, um, as I suppose part one of the, of, of, of the day job. Um, I think an awful lot of it is, because of the success of Chep, you know, this this sort of slight reinvention, uh, slight, it's unfair, major reinvention of agency structure. Because we've sort of seen agencies see this rising challenge of the consultancies coming through and this sort of understanding that clients maybe want something more than just buying an ad. Um, and Chep, particularly because it sort of comes through the, the, the data side of things and the customer experience side of things, has had real success in tapping into that and finding an, a source of dollars they wouldn't necessarily get at before. But um, at the same time, you know, deliver some good sort of creative work, you know, particularly when it comes to the direct side of things. So this is very much about can you then bake that sort of consultancy style process into the wider Clemenger group? So that is the challenge is can you can you do the same thing for Clemenger BBDO that Chep is achieving? Because that will bring a lot more dollars into the Clemenger group as a whole if they can. So, Tim, you alluded to the success of Chris in transforming CHE proximity, of which there's no doubt. But Nick Garrett has been at the helm of Clemenger BBDO. So in Sydney and Melbourne, he's been the CEO of that group. My understanding is he's done a good job as well. So, what does this mean for Nick? He he has a new boss? Yeah, Nick has a new boss, but it's kind of worth underlining. It, it always looked like a big question because in Nick Garrett and Chris Howardson, Rob Morgan, the chairman of Clemenger Group, has got two, two of Australia's best executives, you know, in terms of achieving, in terms of thinking in a modern way about agencies. So it's always going to be a dilemma. And what, what what do you do with 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 those two bits of talent? So, you know, Nick probably is well has gone on a very different journey to Chris. So whereas Chris has had to sort of invent a new agency model, so he he inherited 
CHEP when CHE and Proximity came together seven years back or something, which was the the point when Mark Cody returned to Mark Code returned to um, uh, media, having sort of headed up CHE, and then he came to um, came over to PhD, and that that created that opportunity, and that was very much for Chris about creating a, a new model. Meanwhile, Nick came over from Colenso in New Zealand, you know, one of the world's great creative agencies, which, you know, he'd been the, 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 the suit side of that partnership and made it, made it happen. Um, he arrived at Clemenger Melbourne with a real challenge to take a really, really traditional agency and arguably too traditional because it was so good creatively that they probably hadn't modernized as much as they, sh- they should. Their, their digital abilities were probably, or, or slight lack of them, were probably a bit hidden at that stage from the fact that their, their creative thinking was so good. So he had to kind of, you know, restructure and take the, take the agency on that journey, but very different process. So it feels like there, there is the opportunity for a genuine partnership between those two because they're very different. You know, Chris, systems thinking, uh, Nick, a suit and account management person who works really well with creative agencies and with creative departments. Um, you know, normally you'd say, Oh, you know, there's probably only room for one boss, but you know, recent years you never privately or publicly, you never hear either one of them say a bad word about the other. They, they talk each other up. So, you know, we, 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 we have seen it happen before that this sort of partnership goes well. And, um, you know, I think probably there's a there's, there's a good chance it does. You know, not least because there's a huge opportunity for 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 Clems if they can make that model work in the way that it works for Chap. And are there implications for other agencies? I note in the comment thread we've got a conspiracy theorist calling themselves three two one who says, and then they start scope creeping on Omnicom's media clients. I mean, fair play, it's a dog-eat-dog world, but it's definitely going to happen. Well, let's remember that Chep are currently Mumbrella's media agency of the year. (laughs) So from that point of view, absolutely. Now, Clemenger Group is interesting because although it's majority owned by Omnicom, there is still a sizable local ownership as well, Which and those shares tend to be held by the staff. So uh, that gives them a, a degree of influence and a degree of independence, not as much as, you know, before they became majority owned, but, but, you know, that's, that's the direction of travel, isn't it? You know, it's, it, it, it absolutely is media and, and creative are folding back in again more than they're moving apart. Um, so I, I think that's, that's also the challenge for the big holding companies though, isn't it? Is, is, they just have this balance sheet stuff to deal with, even if it's not actually necessarily the right model for for clients or even the future health of the industry. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure it's that much of a conspiracy theory, though. <laughs> Up next, Mumbrella's Josie Tutty talks to Lad Bible's Joe Summers. And joining us now is the Managing Director of Lad Bible Australia, Joe Summers. Joe recently landed in Sydney and has been tasked with setting up the publishers team here in Australia, having previously been the head of agency sales in the London office. Welcome, Joe. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Cheers. Still early morning for me. Have you acclimatised yet to Sydney? Just about, to be honest. I'm getting there. The heat has um, started to die off. So Yeah, it's starting to feel a bit more like England now. Exactly. <laughs> um, so why did you guys think it was the right time to launch in Australia? Obviously, we've got a bit of a backdrop of negative stories around publishing. We've had the Vice redundancies, the BuzzFeed redundancies. It feels like there's been a lot of bad news. So it's great that there's some good news and something positive happening. But why did you feel it was the right time to launch? I suppose um, it was the audience that told us. We've got a massive uh, audience in Australia and it just felt natural. It felt like the natural next step. Uh, Where we are in the UK right now, we're an established business. You know, we've won um, Cannes Awards and Grand Prix and We've done some amazing work there. So we now are looking ahead and, and seeing where um, where the future is for our company. And Australia just seemed like the next step, you know, the first international office that, we'd, uh, that we've that we launched. And it's about time that we started servicing that audience that we've got, you know, producing local content um, and working with brands on a local level. So it was, um, it just felt natural, to be totally mm-hmm. honest. Yeah. 
And you obviously have the Lab Bible Australia Facebook page. So did that help the decision? Did you kind of already have a feel that your audience were, were the right fit for this country? Yeah. I mean, the the sense of humour is fairly similar. Australians uh, and the UK is t- tends to be, you know, that's how we've picked up this Australian community um, through the content that we've produced. It's resonated with that with that community. So there are a lot of similarities. Um, we opened uh, the or created the Lab Bible Australia page um, because we saw that um, there was a lot of Australians that were, were liking our content. So we produced that, um, and we wanted to we wanted to create content that was just for them. Um, to be fair, we probably could have done more um, over the last few years, but now that we're here in Australia, that's the focus. We really want to produce content for um, Australians, uh, you know, in their language. Um, which is why the team that we've got in place here are mostly Australians. That's um, good. Always helps. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, we kind of knew it would work from the start, and we knew that Australians would consume our content and they enjoy it. You know, everything that we're talking about, um, they seem to it really resonates with them. With them, but now it's just developing that a lot more. You know, what is it that our Australian community want to hear about? You know, what are the Australian um, topics that really are important to, to that audience and how can we bring a voice you know um, how can we um, be a voice of um, uh, of young people in Australia um, that's kind of the reason yeah and where do you see your company fitting into the landscape here like who do you see as your competitors and where do you sort of see yourself fitting it's a lot less saturated uh, here back home there's so many publishers and there's so many um, media companies uh, over here it doesn't feel like there's that many um, there's a lot of publishers that are doing really good work I've heard a lot of good things about people uh, about uh, publishers out here um, and how they work with brands and also how they communicate to their audience um, but to be fair we never really see ourselves in a, a fixed competitive set we we usually come up against the likes of the guardian or a broadcaster channel or a radio network or um you know there's always going to be those social publishers or those online publishers that are similar to us um, but anyone that um, wants to reach a young audience you know 18 to 35 year olds anyone who communicates to their audience that's where we see our um our competitive set you know and it could take us into any media channel it could be um as i said radio broadcaster so yeah that's probably very vague um, <laughs> yeah i want you to give me some names <laughs> i mean there's always people always doing good work in the um in the online space you know you've mm-hmm. got the likes of buzzfeed and vice mm-hmm. and pedestrian i've heard great things um about so the bar is set quite high and and us coming over here we you know we want to and um, we want to prove to to brands and to um to partners that Online is a, is the place to be. Branded content is the uh, is the product that can really help their um, you know their KPIs and their their brand move forward. So probably together as a competitive set, we need to educate the market rather than being oh it's us against them. It mm. just doesn't work. We need to come together and we need to educate people on how to communicate to young people. You know how what are the best ways to work in social or work online um, or work with branded content and um, hopefully um, well personally that's the way that I think that we should all move forward. And obviously you have uh, your own brand and content agency, Joyride. Um, where do you sort of see that sitting in the market? Do you, do you also see yourself as competing with creative agencies or or do you really just see yourself more as a pure social media agency? I'm kind of interested to hear yeah, how you hear it. It confuses it. a lot of people, the name. <laughs> we, we like names at Lad Bubble Group and it tends to confuse people. Um, but Joyride is, is our creative, uh, it's our in-house creative team um, and it connects brand to our audience like if you're going to come and work with a publisher you want to the reason why you're coming to them is because you want uh you want them to communicate to their audience authentically um and you want to um you know you want to communicate the brand message but in a way that we would do it editorially so we're not trying to compete with creative agencies at Mm -hmm. all um all we are uh, we understand our audience we know what works we're the experts when it comes to communicating to young people um, so why why wouldn't you want that expertise and that advice? You know that that's why you've come to us. Um, but we can you know we've worked with creative agencies before. There's not there's not it's not mutually exclusive. We've mm-hmm. worked with um, we can work in many different ways. We're very flexible. We're very agile. So um, yeah, I wouldn't say that we're we're trying to you know. <laughs> it's just the fact that we know what uh, we know what we're doing and we always want to educate. Yeah, we had Tim Duggan from Junkie on the podcast um, quite a few months back now. And he we got into the conversation around the fact that publishers are almost becoming the new social media agencies because they already have that 
audience there they're constantly testing every single day their content they know exactly what works would you agree that publishing has almost become the new social agency to be fair the expertise that you get from agencies media agencies the expertise that you get from creative agencies and pr they're so valuable that really you know as i said that all of these things aren't mutually exclusive just because we're publishing we understand our audience which is you know um that's what we're experts in it doesn't mean that you should not work with media agencies and come work with mm-hmm. us as your social media agency. You know, there, uh, there's a combination of get, if you use everyone in the right way, you're going to get the best. You know, why would you? Why would you not want to speak to experienced people in all different areas of mm-hmm. media rather than just focusing on one? So, yeah, it's always better to get multiple, um, multiple uh, advice and and thoughts. You know, that's probably the best approach. Um, so in 2018, Facebook made a change to its algorithm. There was a lot of naysaying, doomsday, shouting over here. Everyone was panicking. All the publishers were saying, like, what are we going to do? We tried to approach a lot of publishers and directly ask them, have you actually seen a drop in your traffic? We got a few mixed responses. Obviously, you're on Facebook every day. So what did you see when that algorithm change happened? We... um it makes perfect sense. Facebook wanted to optimize their newsfeed. They wanted to make it the most engaging content. You know, they wanted to make it the best for the users. You know, user experience is the most important thing. Um, so as a result, what they did is they um, they pushed content that was being shared with, engaged with, um, higher up the feeds. You know, like you would your friends. You comment, you um, your friends post, you comment, you like, um, you'll tag your friends in, all that kind of thing. So um, that's what we've been doing since day one. So naturally, it benefited us and we were um we didn't really see much change to be honest you know our content is um it's tailored for social i'd probably say where publishers maybe saw a dip is where they didn't tailor the content for social maybe you know they tailored, they had they produced a piece of content for their online site and then they just pushed it onto social to kind of drive um drive traffic that way so um i'd say that the the algorithm probably most affected people that weren't tailoring content to Facebook. Mm -hmm. And would you say that there was a difference between your video content and your like articles and your news content? No, I mean, it's the same, same across the board, like whether it's video written, um, whether it's a post, wherever it is, um, we've learned up, we've learned over the years exactly how to fine tune, you know, a teaser, for example, we know the headline that will, that our audience will respond best to. We know the image that a thumbnail would probably be you know uh, for example face faces in thumbnails do really well for engagement um, rather than just a, an image of an object so these learnings we've put in place uh, which is kind of puts in good stead mm-hmm. like we um we survived the algorithm yeah <laughs> the algorithm yeah. um do you ever worry though about an over-reliance on facebook and are you trying to diversify beyond social we've got a fairly diverse portfolio i mean we're on uh, Facebook, um, we're the biggest Facebook publisher in the world. Uh, Instagram, we're you know we're pretty big. Snapchat is actually quite a, uh, an emerging platform for us. Uh, we're the fastest, uh, we're the fastest uh, discovery channel um, on there. Um, we've got a big audience in Australia actually. Uh, mm. Then we've got our .dot com sites. Um, we've got a huge amount of traffic globally as well as Australia. I think two point four million unique Australians a month um, that go onto our labbubble.com com site. Um, so that we're not really over reliant on any um, platform we feel. Don't get me wrong; like we're, Facebook is a huge part of our business, mm-hmm. and uh, we don't feel they're going anywhere soon. So um, we're we feel fairly secure with that being a p- big part of our business. But yeah, we we feel uh, fairly diversified. You know, there's always exciting things that we can look at in the future. We've got quite a um, keen eye on immersive tech and how that plays out. You know, how can we um, communicate a story? Um, to a young audience via AR or VR or AI, whatever it is, you know, we're always looking at these things of how young people are consuming content. So um, as long as we stay in touch with that, we'll be fine. So obviously you're you're very well known, I would say, from a consumer point of view here. I'm always having my Australian friends share things. They might not even know it's from you guys, but I'm like, oh yeah, that's Lad Bible. Um, but do you think from a commercial point of view, you're quite as well known? Do you think brands almost feel a little bit like they don't quite know who you guys are yet do you think maybe they're waiting for you to make your first moves or how is that going from a commercial point of view yeah i think you've hit the nail on the head we're we're known from a consumer point of view like we reach 
half of all Australians a month. When it comes to commercial, we've never been here. You know, we've um, we've not been we've not had people a sales team out there talking about the great things that Lab Bubble have been doing and and what um, uh, and what young people you know how they're consuming content or um, the editorial campaigns that we're up to. So um, that's why we're here now. We want to start talking about those things. Like, don't get me wrong, there are obstacles. Uh, people's perception of Lad Bubble Group um, is a bit off to what we're used <laughs> to. The term Lad itself, you know, in the UK, the term Lad is an everyday hero. Mm-hmm. It's gender neutral. Our audience is actually 55 male, 45 female at home. But over here, it's slightly more female and we have more uh, female uh, Australian females than males. So just if just talking about these things the perception goes away the term lad if you ask a um, a young person what a lad means they'll probably give you a very different answer to what um, someone in their 40s 50s might say so it's our job to educate it's our job to talk about um, who we are as a publisher what we represent um, and you know once we start talking about those things I'm, I'm fairly hopeful that the perception will go away of if there is one of, um, of any negative. Yeah. <laughs> um, and let's talk about Unilad for a little bit, because um, recently Lab Bible Group bought Unilad out of administration. I just wondered if you could tell me sort of the story behind that. You know, you guys have quite a history, an intertwining history, I believe. So why did you decide to make that sale? Yeah, it was over the years, it's been our closest competitor. Um, and as we've grown, you know, they've always been right on our heels. Um, you know, as I said, we we were the biggest social publisher in the world, and I think they were, you know, second or third. So, it's all we've always had a very close relationship, if you can call it that. Their product is amazing. Unilad as a product and as an audience, it's incredible. Um, so, I'm, I'm pretty sure anyone would, uh, any publisher would be keen to have those publications under their portfolio. You know, it's they've got the winning formula in terms of editorial and stuff like that as a business. You know. Um, they did go into administration and we felt that not only was it a massive win for us to get the uh, the publications within our company but also we're um they're very similar to us in the business model and you know they're on the same platforms as us um same revenue streams so as a business we felt that we were probably best placed to to turn that around and to yeah and to make them profitable mm-hmm. um, we felt like we could um, we could definitely help out there and and that's been exactly the case you know we've uh, we bought um, we bought the staff on board. Um, we've um, now uh, got the publications under our portfolio, um, and it's a profitable business. So um, it's all worked out well. And as a as a company now, we're stronger than ever. And will Unilad be sort of launching its own thing in Australia, or would you, would you just be keeping the UK side of that for now? No, it's all under one belt. Like we're here as Lad Bubble Group, so everything that we have as a company will be offering Australian brands. Um, will be readily available yeah it's uh it fits into our portfolio we've got lad bible sport bible pretty 52 we've got uh, lens which is our f- photography uh, publication now we've got unilad unilad adventure which is an amazing um, publication itself so it just fits nicely into uh, into our portfolio um, and it's just another community an engaged community that we can access and with your business model at the moment, I'm just interested to hear sort of the proportions of things, how much of your money is coming from display ads, if that's even still a thing, how much <laughs> is coming from the agency side of things, you know, what are the proportions there? Over here, it's all fresh. So like, we're going to have to find that out. <laughs> um, we've got quite, a, we've got a big amount of display inventory um, and our performance on display is incredible, you know, 90% viewability and view through rate of 88 um, so yeah, I mean, in terms of the products available, we feel very confident that brands will want to work with us because we can offer something to them, um, whether that's branded content or display or programmatic, um, in terms of the splits, I have no idea, hopefully <laughs> I'll figure that out pretty soon. But, um, at the moment it's, uh, it's more of a case of, we want to, we want to listen to brands, we want to listen to media agencies and, um, and people in market and understand what it is, how it is they'd like us to work with them. You know, mm-hmm. we really want to, we're not coming over here with, um, with uh, a stru- a set kind of fixed um, way of working. We want to adapt to the Australian market. We want to adapt to Australian brands and media agencies and, and kind of fit to their, um, to their flow. Mm-hmm. We recently published a story that kind of kicked off amongst the journalism community in Australia where um, 
essentially was a list of the most prolific journalists in Australia. Um, And some of the journalists that made the list weren't actually very happy with being on the list because it kind of implied that they were pumping out a lot of content. One of our own reporters eventually made the list too. Shout out to Abby. (laughs) I'm assuming you guys are pumping out a lot of content too because you need a lot to keep that Facebook wheel grinding. How do you kind of keep on top of the content without losing quality? We've got a fairly... Uh, big editorial team in the headquarters um, and we've got um, a team that look after Sport Bible the you know, fanatical sport fans and um, pretty sure to a female publication and lads so their streamlines they know exactly what our audience um, are into you know they know exactly how to communicate to their audience um, and over the years we've fine-tuned it so um, we understand you know what um, what content will do well, what genres will do well, you know, even to an extent where we, we asked our audience through a survey on social, we asked them what kind of, what topics do you want to hear about? You know, what um, would you love to hear from us um, and how Um, it's surprising what comes up. We, um, a lot of, a lot of uh, political, um, you know, uh, appetite was there. There was a lot uh, of environmental um, subjects that popped up as well as the entertainment stuff. Entertainment's a huge part of our business, you know, whether it's, um, you know, uh, anything from food to films to, to series, anything like that. So we just know our audience and we know what works. I'd say that's probably um, what is uh, what allows us to streamline the process and produce enough content for them. So where do you see Lab Bible Australia in maybe five years' time? <laughs> um, five years' time. Uh, I would love for us to feel and look like an Australian company. Um, I would say that, it's important for us to do a, some big projects that are, spe- that are tailored to Australians. Um, you know, we've got a back home. We're known for a campaign trash Isles, which is where we um, there was so much plastic in the ocean that we made a country out of it, and we leveraged our um, our access to talent to spread awareness um, about this issue. It went to the UN. It got spoke about the UN, and we drove you know a ridiculous amount of sign ups, and it was an, an amazing campaign. We want to do something very um, Australian focused. You know, what is it? Um, that we can really add value to how can we not just come here as a business but come here um, and benefit australia so we're going to be doing some research about you know what that looks like we uh, we've already got some ideas we're going to ask our audience and ask people in market um, how we can add value um, and then that really hopefully will will establish you know we'll kind of get the ball rolling um, we'll understand what our australian tone of voice is the language that we use for our australian community um, we'll pick up some great campaigns with um, australian brands um, so to be fair like in five years time i would uh, i'd love it if people you know when they thought about branding content in australia they thought, thought about social and young people in australia they thought of us first that'd probably be my measurement of success yeah great well i think that's a good place to end sadly we've run out of time but thank you very much for joining us right, thank you And that's it for this week. But before we go, as this is a podcast, it's worth mentioning Mumbrella's first Audio Land conference is coming up very soon. Just two weeks. Join us in Sydney on May the 2nd to hear from the likes of Spotify, ARN, Southern Cross Stereo, Amazon Alexa, Eardrum and more. There's now very limited space remaining. Usually that's one of those things where you say it when you're really desperate to sell some tickets and create a bit of of, of false scarcity. It's true. We might have to stop selling tickets. We've nearly sold out. So hop on over to mumbrella.com.au forward slash audio land to grab one of those final tickets. And speaking of which, with the short Easter Anzac week next week, there won't be a Mumbrella cast. So the next one, our fifth, am I right in saying it's our 50th fifth? Is that right? The episode at Audioland will indeed be the 50th episode of the latest incarnation of the Mumbrella cast. Imagine, imagine the excitement and celebration that will go be going on as we record that one live at Audioland. Um, that is it for this week, though. Have a great Easter. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Toodle pet.